I'm going to be honest with you, I was a little disappointed when all the fun left the building a few minutes ago and all the children left. If I preach short tonight, can we all go to the bonfire and get s'mores? Man, that aroused some people who hadn't woken up all week. That's good. Uh, we've had a great time together, haven't we? And uh, I want to say to this church family, I had the privilege, of course, of being with you from the Lord's Day all the way through, but thank you for being here, for hosting all of us, for working behind the scenes. I told the preacher today the way the ladies have just cared for us, the hospitality shown, all the details, and a lot goes into hosting something like this. And you have done a fantastic job, and all of us that are visiting just deeply, deeply appreciate it. And I know many of you preachers stayed through tonight, to be honest with you. We didn't know if we'd have any preachers here tonight. But we're glad you're here, and we've enjoyed the time together, and just looking forward to all that God will say to us. I am thrilled to see so many friends here tonight. Brother Rossi's been a friend and encouragement to me for a long time. Great to see him. And uh, Miss Sexton and Mandy, we're glad to see you. I've uh, been, been praying much for you, and uh, thank the Lord for you. I want to pray for Brother Tom. He is uh, departing shortly to Africa right? And we're really praying that the Lord will use him there and the team that's going with him and give him souls. I told you earlier this week, one of our team members has been in Pakistan for the last uh, eight, seven or eight days, and he just called me right before I came in and all excited. They're in the airport on their way back, but they've had a host of people saved there. And so we give God the glory for it, and if you'd help me pray for their safe return the states i'd appreciate it so very much well let's open the word of god together what do you say uh, the last two days we've really concentrated our time in the life of one of god's great men what's his name church say it please moses you have been listening that's good and by the way the only thing that makes any man great is god is great in his life we say well, that's a great preacher that's a great man that's a great family that's a great church we use that word a lot you know but really only one is great god is great so if there's any great thing in any person, it sure must be the Lord, because I guarantee you it's not us. But God was big in Moses' life, and because of that, all these years later, we're still studying the life of Moses to glean from it so much that we need to know about equipping the next generation. I don't think anybody did any better at that than Moses did. And let's, class, let's review just for a minute before we open the Scriptures, all right? We started not with Moses. We started with his father-in-law, whose name was Jethro. And uh, I can't say that name without hearing the Beverly Hillbillies theme song in the background. But uh, when I say think Jethro, I think not so smart. How many of you are with me on that? But Jethro in the Bible wasn't just smart. He was wise. And Jethro gave some amazing counsel. And we started there. Then we backed up last night and we walked through all the scriptures where Joshua comes to the forefront and all the connections between Moses and Joshua. And we identified a list of seven things that the next generation needs to know. And I think Joshua is representative of that in every way. Earlier today with the preachers that were here, we looked at Numbers chapter 27 and Moses' model. It's, it's really a beautiful pattern. It's the Lord's way of passing the shepherd's staff, so to speak, to the next generation. And it's not just important you carry the baton, it's important you pass it on effectively. And that's really what we're trying to learn to do. And that's not just for preachers, that's for all God's children. And so tonight we're going to back up to where the whole thing starts. Where does it all begin? Go with me just for a second. Take a little trip. Use a little sanctified imagination. I want you to see Moses with his rod in his hand, the rod of God, leading all those millions of Jews through that wilderness. You talk about a big assignment. And everybody says, oh, what a leader Moses was. Yeah, God really used him. He was a great follower and a great leader. And then there's, there's Aaron. And look at Aaron. Watch Aaron as he goes about doing the work of the high priest. That was high, holy work. Handling the things all around the tabernacle. I mean, think what God let him do. And then there's Miriam. Can you hear her sing? It's beautiful singing. I don't know what she sounded like. We don't know, we don't know the, uh, the tune of her song. We just know the tone of her song. Because it's triumphant. It's glorious. It's victorious. As she lifts her voice and worships God. And behind Moses and Aaron and Miriam, 
There's a couple. Now, by the time Moses and Aaron and Miriam really get prominent and they're in their positions, mom and daddy are long gone. But I think in heaven they're, they're reaping rewards from it. Their names are Amram and Jochebed. If I said to you, stand and tell me something about Moses, almost everybody could do that. Or Aaron, maybe a little something even about Miriam. But if I said, stand and tell me everything you know about Amram and Jochebed, we say, who's he talking about? Because they're not the most famous people in Scripture, not most familiar to all of us. And yet I want to tell you, we wouldn't be talking about Moses and talking about Aaron and talking about Miriam. We wouldn't be talking about what we're talking about right now if it wasn't for the faith and the faithfulness of Amram and Jochebed. And so tonight I want to say to you, it all begins at home. Would you open your Bible with me to the New Testament? Somebody said, I thought you was preaching on Moses. I am. But I want you to go with me to Hebrews chapter number 11 for just a moment. We'll back up to the Old Testament and we'll compare Scripture with Scripture tonight. I think that's a good thing to do, don't you? Somebody said, are you one of those Old Testament people or New Testament people? Yes is the answer. Yes, I'm both. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable. And so when you come to Hebrews chapter number 11, this great hall of faith, it is full of a record of these Old Testament saints who believed God. Do you understand that faith is the same in every generation and that the object of our faith, the Lord himself, must be the same in every generation? When you come to Hebrews chapter number 11, outside of Abraham, Moses takes up more space than just about anybody. And it begins in verse number 23 where the Bible says, by faith Moses. Now this is interesting. He says, by faith Moses. And yet, this verse is really not so much about Moses. It's about Moses' parents. You might want to write in the margin of your Bible the names, Amram and Jochebed. And for the record, I'm just going to tell you, I think there's a whole lot of people when we get to the judgment seat someday that are anonymous on earth that will be well known in heaven. Nobody is anonymous to the God who knows everyone. So maybe, maybe, just maybe, you're not Moses, but maybe you could raise a Moses or influence a Moses or pray for a Moses or encourage a Moses and help a Moses. Maybe you could be Amram or Jochebed. What do you think? Because this is where it all begins. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hid three months of his parents because they saw he was a proper child. And they were not afraid of the king's commandment. I love the great contrast here between faith and fear. Look, the fear of man brings a snare, but whoso putteth his trust in the Lord shall be safe. When you have confidence in God, you don't have to be afraid of any man. And then you come to verse number 24 where the Bible says, By faith, Moses when he was come to years, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. Do you see the chain reaction? In verse number 23, it's parental faith. And in verse number 24, it's personal faith. Amram and Jochebed couldn't believe God for Moses. They had to believe God for themselves. But they could give such an example, an exhortation of faith, that by the time Moses comes to years, he believes that their God is the true and living God, and he wants to follow him in faith as well. Every child must choose God for himself. Every, every person in the next generation must have their own experience with God. But I wonder if they see any of the reality of God in us. F.B. Myers suggested that it is very likely Moses was only around his, these parents for the first four to five years of his life. Now, let that sink in just a minute. You remember the whole story, right? And the baby in a basket and then... You know, Pharaoh's daughter and, and hiring uh, his own mother to take care of him and nurse him. But think about this just a minute. Somehow, something got deeply enough in the heart of Moses that when he finally comes to years, though he has learned in all the ways of the Egyptians, Acts chapter number 7, he really has the wisdom of God to believe the Lord. And instead of being consumed with the idolatry of Egypt, he is captured by the reality of the God of Israel. When Daniel was carried off into captivity, he was about 18 years of age. He was a long ways from his mom and daddy, but something got in him before he was 18 that he could not escape when he was way down yonder in the land of the captivity. Joseph is carried away and sold into captivity. It's going to be a long time before he sees his daddy again. But there was something of his daddy's God deeply implanted in his soul that he could not escape even when he was living in the most wicked place on planet earth. 
And there's something that Moses' mother and father demonstrated of their own faith in God that became his own. And I love the way it continues. I wish you had time to study the whole thing with you. When you come to verse number 28, through faith he, that's, that's Moses. Verse 29, by faith they. I love this. You want to see the real chain reaction? You move from the parents' faith to his personal faith to now the pioneering faith that led Joshua and the children of Israel to keep on believing and obeying God. Look, when you follow God in faith, there is no telling how far the Lord can take it. But... It all begins at home. Go back a few pages in your Bible before we go to the Old Testament and look for just a minute at Hebrews chapter number 3. I noticed this phrase the other day, and, and there's lots of implications here related to the law and the Old Testament covenant, but did you ever notice Hebrews chapter 3 and verse number 2? The Bible, speaking of Moses, said that he was faithful to him that appointed him as also Moses was faithful to in all his house. Whew, what a testimony. The older I get, the longer I serve the Lord, the less certain things mean to me. It's funny, but preaching some places, lots of places, to lots of people is meaning less and less to me. Certain things that as a young minister I would have thought, oh, that'd be wonderful. Oh, that'd be great. It's meaning less and less to me. May I just testify for a moment and tell you what's meaning more and more to me? I want my children to love Jesus. Thinking of Isaac and Morgan, Morgan's our oldest, she's 24 now, and, and they've been married for a couple of years, and they have our first granddaughter. I'm a papa. Did you know I'm a papa? And I got lots of pictures if you want to see them afterwards. They're wonderful. I joined the crazy club. You know, it's wonderful. Isn't it wonderful? And I'm thinking now, oh, Lord, let them serve you all the days of their life. And let them teach that little girl how to love and follow Jesus, too. I'm thinking about Lauren. She's 21 now, and she's talking to a young man. I've been praying for the rapture to come before that happens to me again, but I don't know if I'm going to get my prayer answered or not. But you know what I want? I just want her to love and serve Jesus. And I'm thinking about Grant. He's, he's 18. He's a freshman in college now. And the kids are about grown. And, and I'm looking at them and I'm thinking about my life. I, I'll tell you what I want. When, when I'm gone someday, if Jesus tears is coming, when I'm gone, I don't, I don't care that they say Dad traveled a lot. Dad went a lot of places, knew a lot of people, preached a lot of sermons. That's meaningless. I'd like Morgan to come by and say, my daddy knew how to pray. I'd like Lauren to say, Daddy taught us the Bible and helped us know God better. I'd like my son to say, my dad wasn't perfect, but he was a man of integrity, and I want to be a man like that. Do you understand? It all begins at home. And Moses, Moses learned it from Amram and Jochebed, and then Moses was faithful in all his house. And then guess what he taught the children of Israel? Same exact thing. He turned around and told all of them, now you've got to be faithful in your house. I'll prove it to you. Go back with me to our text now in the book of Deuteronomy, the book of the second law. You ever wonder why God repeats himself? Because we forget everything. We forget everything. We're so forgetful. Aren't we forgetful people? Let's take a little survey. I'm curious. How many of you have a pretty good short-term memory? You'd say your short-term memory is really strong. Would you raise your hand, please? God bless all six of you. That's very good. How many of you say, well, I have a good long-term memory? Would you raise your hand, please? Long-term is better for you. That's, that's a little better. How many of you have no memory at all? Would you raise your hand, please? This is bad. Can I tell you, there's a, there's a certain kind of memory we all need to work on. Can I tell you what it is? It's called spiritual memory. It's one of the first things to go to. How quickly we forget the goodness of God. How quickly we forget the, the wickedness of our own hearts. How quickly we forget our vows to God. How quickly we forget all the answers to prayer. I tell you, we're forgetful people. And so the Lord repeats himself again and again and again. And when God repeats himself, it's not because he forgot he said it the first time. When God repeats in Deuteronomy what he said in Exodus, it's because they needed to hear it again. And another generation coming on has to learn how to follow God in faith. 
And so here they stand, young families now on the edge of the promised land, on the brink of all that God has for them. And what is the Lord's emphasis? Look at Deuteronomy 6, beginning in verse number 3. Hear, therefore, O Israel, and observe to do it, that it may be well with thee, and that ye may increase mightily, as the Lord God of thy fathers hath promised thee, in the land that floweth with milk and honey. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. And thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thine heart and with all thy soul and with all thy might. And these words which I command thee this day shall be in thine heart and thou shalt teach them diligently unto thy children and shalt talk of them when thou sittest in thine house and when thou walkest by the way and when thou liest down and when thou risest up. And thou shalt bind them for a sign upon thine hand, and they shall be as frontlets between thine eyes. And thou shalt write them upon the post of thy house and on thy gates. You ought to take your pen and write in big, bold boxcar letters, underline it, put an exclamation point after it in the margin of your Bible next to this text. It all begins at home. You want to see a mighty move of God? Stop waiting for it to break out at the church house and let it begin at your house. People say, well, I tell you, if we could just get the right preacher to come through town, preach the right sermons, and really get us all stirred up, you, you, you better read history a little bit. Do you know that some of the greatest awakenings that have ever touched this planet did not start in open public meetings? They started in the secret place, in the privacy of a home somewhere, where people got thoroughly right with God and right with one another, and the Lord started it in the house, and it spread to the community. The old Puritan John Owen said he went to a certain pastorate in a village and he was so excited, so excited to pastor that village church and he just knew God was going to work and man, he prayed and he preached and he worked and he said six months in, they hadn't had a single convert, nobody had gotten right with the Lord and no one had been baptized or added to the church. Six months in. And suddenly he's deflated and discouraged. And he said, I went to the Lord and said, Lord, is this me? I mean, something's wrong here. Something's holding back the blessing. And he said the Holy Spirit prompted him to visit in the homes of every one of his church members. To get out of the church and get to the house. So he set appointments with every member family. And the, the stipulation was that every member of that household had to be there when the preacher came. And all of them would get around the table, and he always did the same thing. He would come in, he would sit down, not, not for a meal. He'd get them all around the table, and he would say, The first thing I want to do, I want to go around the table, and I want each of you to give me your testimony of faith in Christ. Tell me how you were born again. And old Mr. Owen said as he went around the table, the first thing he realized in a hurry, he had a whole bunch of lost church members. And in the home, he led many of them to Christ. He said, I discovered, I was talking to people trying to get them to do Christian things. They weren't even Christians. Then, once he dealt with their personal salvation, he would ask the head of the household, do you have a family Bible? Back in the day, everybody had a family Bible. And Oh, yes, and they'd go get that giant Bible and bring it to the dining room table. And he would open that family Bible, and he would find a portion of Scripture, and he would read, just read, not a sermon, not a lecture, not a lesson. He would just read the Bible. And after he'd read some Scripture, he'd pause and say, now let's pray. And he would pray over every member of that family by name. And when he said amen, he would slide the Bible to the head of household and say, what I have just done with your family, you must begin to do with your family every day. John Owen later testified that within a matter of days, revival broke out in their community. There were so many people getting saved and baptized, you couldn't even get them all in the church building at the same time. The, the jails were empty and the bars were empty and, and a spiritual awakening came to the community and he said, I learned something. I learned that spiritual awakenings don't happen because preachers preach better sermons. They happen because people get right with God in the privacy of their own home. May I say to you tonight, not a one of us is a better Christian than the Christian we are in the privacy of our home. You want to know what kind of preacher I am? You can listen to a sermon. You want to know what kind of man I am? You have to ask my wife about that. I'm serious. And if I want to know what kind of Christian you are, I wouldn't ask your pastor. I'd ask the people that live at your house. 
Your spouse, your children, your grandchildren, they know the truth about every one of us. And God knows the truth about every one of us. Look, everything begins at home. Every bad thing starts sown in the heart of a child at home. Every good thing gets sown in the heart of a child at home. And it is high time the Lord's people say, we're going to start where God intended us to start at the very beginning, and that is with our own family. We say we want to equip the next generation. What about the one staring us in the face? And I'm looking around, and there's some people in this room who say, well, my, my kids are grown. you got grandchildren? you got great-grandchildren? Look, if you're not dead, you're not done. And before we're done tonight, I want you to recognize that your divine assignment is your responsibility. You're going to meet God with it someday. And if it all begins at home, maybe, just maybe, that's where we should begin. Three truths tonight. They all come from Deuteronomy 6. Would you write them down? Number one. I want you to see, first of all, that godly influence starts at home. We say we want our kids and grandkids under godly influences. So we try to find a a good school and we try to find a good youth group and we try to find a good group of friends. And I'm for every bit of that. But I want you to know godly influence doesn't start out there. It starts in here. Godly influence starts at home. Did you ever notice that before you get to the teaching of verse number 7, He deals with the way you hear God and the way you love God and the way you obey God. This is very important. Matter of fact, everybody take your pen. Let me show you something. This is fascinating. In verse number 3, what's the first word of verse 3, class? I didn't hear you. What's the first word of verse 3? Here. Mark it in your Bible. What's the first word of verse 4? Here. So he's trying to get us to listen. Who has ears to hear? Let him hear. 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 Then come to verse number 5 when I stop to say the next word. And thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thine Mark the word heart in verse number 5. Come to verse 6. And these words which I commanded this day shall be in thine what? Heart. So you've got hear, hear, heart, heart. Now come to verse number 7. Thou shalt teach them diligently unto thy children. Talk of them when thou sittest in thine what? House. Come to verse number 9. Thou shalt write them upon the post of thy what? House. Do you you see the divine progression here? It starts with hearing God. You've got to have the word in your ears. Then it starts with your heart. You've got to get the word of God in your heart. And then then you bring it into your house. If you try to start in your house and it's not in your heart, your kids are going to know there's no reality and validity to the faith you're trying to teach them. They must see it in you. It's the old adage of more is caught than is taught. My dad and mom, I've alluded to several times this week. I talked to them a while ago. God willing, when I get home tomorrow in the mountains, they're going to pick me up at the airport and have lunch together, and I'm excited about that. They're my heroes. They're my heroes. If I could be like somebody, that's who I want to be when I grow up. Because they've been faithful to God and faithful to one another and faithful to everything God's assigned them to do. And I, I just admire them. No show, just faithful. But I'm looking back on the years growing up. We didn't have a perfect home. Dad wasn't a perfect dad. Mother wasn't a perfect mother. They'd be the first to tell you that. But I'm going to tell you what they did give us. They gave us a happy home. In fact, I think one of the greatest things my parents ever gave us was the joy of Jesus. I mean, they demonstrated that the holy life really is a happy life and that you don't have to be miserable to follow Christ. We were in church all the time. There was no negotiation about it. And not only were we there, we went early. We didn't just go early, we stayed late. When the preacher asked for volunteers, guess what? We volunteered. And the most amazing thing happened. We actually grew up thinking, now hold on your seat, I know this is crazy. We actually grew up thinking it was fun to go to church. How sick is that? I mean, they brainwashed us. That's what they did. But it didn't hurt me at all. Because now all these years later, I'm testifying and telling you. I thank God I saw something in their life that I wanted for my own. When Tammy and I started having children, I said to her, she grew up in a happy Christian home. Her parents, not in the Lord's work, but great people. And we said together, if God will help us, we want to have the kind of joyful home where our kids will want this Christian faith. I wonder... Are you demonstrating the reality of Jesus and the glory of grace 
and the wonder of the mercy of God. I, look, I understand every moment's not smiles and laughter. I understand there's difficulties and burdens and bills, and I get all of that. But I'm going to tell you something. When Jesus is real in your life, you don't have to just say it. You show it. Everybody knows it because he shows up on your countenance. And the godly influence starts at home. Can I show you a little illustration outside the life of Moses? Hold your place here just a second. Go over to Judges with me for a minute. Now, Judges is a dark book. There's a lot of, a lot of anarchy, every man doing that, which is right in his own eyes. But God was raising up Judges. Come to Judges 13. There's a phrase here that captured my attention the other day in my own reading of Scripture. I came across it. It's, it's related to the birth of Samson. And, and say what you will, Samson ended up being a fleshly man. But Samson did know something of the power of the Spirit of God. And God used Samson. Look behind Samson. I say again, it all begins at home. Look at Judges 13, verse number 8. Then Manoah, that's his daddy, entreated the Lord and said, Oh, my Lord, let the man of God which thou didst sin come again unto us. And would you mark this phrase? Here it is. This ought to be every parent's prayer. Teach us what we shall do unto the child that shall be born. I don't know a lot about Manoah and Mrs. Manoah, but I know this. They prayed a really good prayer. Lord, we don't know what to do, but we'd like you to tell us what to do. Lord, you show us what to say, and you show us how to live, and you show us how to make right decisions, and you give us wisdom from above, and you make us the father and the mother that will guide this child to God so he can be used of the Lord. I'm telling you, it starts at home, people. Go back to Deuteronomy 6, and I'll give you a second principle. Not only does godly influence start at home, but secondly, Bible instruction starts at home. How many of you are like your kids, grandkids, great-grandkids, and all these children that were sitting over here in this section a while ago? How many of you would like them to really know the Bible? Would you raise your hand, please? Okay? Don't wait on somebody else to teach it to them. People drop their kids off at youth group and Sunday school and children's clubs and, and Christian schools every week of the world, hoping somebody else will give them the Bible. I just want to remind you, God gave your children and grandchildren to you for a reason. And we're stewards of those young people. And we are, in the words of Paul, stewards of the mysteries of God. Look, the greatest stewardship is not the stewardship of time, talent, and treasure. The greatest stewardship is the stewardship of truth. You have the truth of the Word of God. It'll outlive time. It'll outlive treasure. It'll outlive talent. It's the only thing that'll outlive this life and will meet on the other side. It is the eternal Word of the living God. There's only two eternal things on this planet tonight. That is the Word Word of God and the souls of men. And God gives us the privilege of connecting those two. Bible instruction starts at home. Look at verse number 7. He says, and. This is after loving the Lord, after hearing the Lord, after obeying the Lord. And thou shalt teach them diligently unto thy children. There's several elements here to Bible instruction. First, there's consistency. It's got to be consistency. It's not some haphazard thing. I remember my grandpa was an old World War II vet. He was a great man. He was just a great man. And he, he died in his late 80s with his tomato steaks in his hand on his way to his garden. He was a great man. He was at Pearl after the attack, helped with the cleanup. He was a farmer. He was a coal miner. He was a tough man. He was crawling through a coal mine one day, and a piece of coal fell and chopped half of his ear off. And he picked it up, crawled out of the mine, drove himself to the hospital, handed it to a nurse and said, sew this back on. And they did. And they sewed a little grayish green line of coal dust into his earlobe. It was there to the day he died. And I thought it was the coolest thing when I was a kid. That was a man's mark. I wanted one of those things on my ear, you know. He was a great man. And I'm thinking now about my grandfather. He, he decided one summer he was going to build a barn. He was going to teach me to build. And so the two of us were going to build this barn together out on the family farm. And I didn't know anything about building. And I'm over here, you know, tapping away on a nail and missing more than I'm hitting. And I can still see him take that hammer out of my hand. He said, boy, let me show you how to use that hammer. Hold it just this way. And then he would say, get it started. Just get it started. And he said, then once you get it started, hit it with steady strokes, slow, steady strokes. And he said, then once you think it's in, hit it one more time and set it. 
You know what Solomon said? He said, God's words of truth are like nails fastened by masters of, of assemblies. You know what we're up to? We're trying to get a little entry point in the lives of these children and young people. Just a little entry point. And then once you get a little entry point, steady, consistent strokes of giving them the word of God. And then about the time you think they've got it, give it to them one more time to set it deeply in their heart. And that is exactly the word that's used here for teach. Would you mark the word teach? When the Bible says teach diligently, it literally means to, to whet or to sharpen. Anybody in here collect knives? Anyone collect knives? If you're a knife collector, you know that every now and then you've got to sharpen them. And when you sharpen them, the way you sharpen them with a, with a sharpening stone is important. You, it's, not, it's not pushing down on it every now and then. It's smooth, steady strokes that whets the, the knife and sharpens the blade. Oh, I love this. Look, please. You want to talk about something sharp. This is sharp right here. Look, please. If you want to sharpen the lives of your young people, it's not about giving them a big mega dose on Sunday. It's about giving them some of God's Word every day of your life. Somebody say, well, we sent them to Bible school. Congratulations! But God didn't say that you live the Christian life one week a year. We sent them to teen camp. Well, that's good, but that's just an emphasis. Every day you must consistently be giving them the Word of the living God. And so there's consistency in our Bible instruction. Then there's communication. Well, we got a breakdown of this. The Bible says, and shall talk of them. We don't even talk anymore. Everybody's just stuck in their mobile device and in their own room watching something different. Nobody even talks anymore. It's time to start talking again. By the way, it shouldn't be odd. It shouldn't be odd for Christian people to talk about Jesus. Strange, isn't it, how you can talk about ball, politics, and work, and school, and vacation, neighborhood, everything under the sun. Seems natural. Then somebody brings up spiritual thing. Everybody gets kind of frozen and quiet. I'm going to tell you why that is. Because we don't do it often enough. Keep looking. Look at verse number 7. He tells when you do it. He said, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise up. And then he says, when you sit in your house. Four times. My pastor used to call this the golden moments in life. Don't miss the golden moments. I like that term. Look at the list. First, when you sit in your house. Part of our problem is nobody sits in their house anymore. They don't have meals together anymore. Could I recommend you still have a family meal together? At this juncture where the kids about raised, you parents know what I'm talking about. Just when they're all home, it's kind of nice, you know. Just have them under one roof. But don't miss those moments when you have them all together when you're sitting in your house. And for the record, let me just throw this one in. Turn the media off for a few minutes while you're sitting in your house. And then he says... When you walk by the way. Did you know that God designed it so that the word of God just weaves naturally into the fabric of all of life? Now don't get me wrong. I, look, I believe in, in having a time where you read the Bible and pray together. I must be honest with you and tell you, we were never great at family devotions. And that may shock you, but you know, we tried and we did better sometimes than we did others. Uh, but schedules and life and you know what I'm talking about. And, you know, some of you think preachers got it all together. Nobody's got it all together. If anybody thinks they got it all together, they're probably coming apart at the seams, I'm going to tell you. Well, you got to work at it all the time. But I've discovered something. I've discovered that weaving the Word of God and spiritual emphasis into everyday life is actually more important than simply giving God five minutes with them in the morning. You know why that is? Because we must teach our children that the Bible is not something you do for a few minutes to check a box and soothe your conscience and appease God. The Bible is what guides you and guards you through every step of life. Remember years ago, Morgan was little, and she was the analytical one, you know, and questioned why, why, why. And, and I, we were driving home from, from work and school one day. I'd picked her up and was taking her home. And it had been one of those days, long, long day at the church and the college. And, and I just stressed out and just not in the mood to talk. You ever been there? And, of course, that's always when the kids ask questions. Isn't it always when they do? And from the back seat, I heard her say, Daddy, I want to ask you something. I said, sure. And she asked a question, and I thought, oh, brother, I don't want to get in that right now. And I gave her some little pat answer, and that didn't suffice. I, had the, I still remember I had the radio on, had talk radio. We, we, we letting others talk to us more than we talk to each other. You know what? And I'm trying to listen to that, and I'm thinking of a hundred different things. And my little girl's in the back seat asking a question. And, and she pressed me on a little more. And so I said a little more, and, and no, that didn't suffice either. And she pressed a little more. And I, got, I was getting a little frustrated now. Don't look at me so pious. You parents have done the same thing. 
and the Holy Ghost wore me out. I still remember, I could tell you where, what road I was on. I could tell you what intersection I was at. And the Holy Spirit said to me, you dummy, turn the radio off. You got a moment here. You got a little window here. She's talking to you about something. She's asking you about something. You may never get this moment again. When you walk by the way, look at the verse. When you lie down, when you rise up. There's the bookends of the day. When you start your day, when you end your day. Look, begin your day with God. End your day with God. Morning, evening, and noon will I pray and cry aloud. Sanctify the whole day by the way it begins and the way it closes. Uh, begin the day with some peace. End the day with quiet and stillness before the Lord. Rejoice in the faithfulness of God every night and the mercy of God every morning. Where does this happen? At your house. Your house is holy ground. Or it should be. Godly influence begins at home. Bible instruction begins at home. By the way, one more little clue here. There's not only consistency in communication, there's comprehensiveness. Look at it, please. you got all times in verse number 7. Uh, then you got verse 8. Thou shalt bind them for a sign upon thine hand. They shall be as frontlets between thine eyes. That's all of your actions. He literally says, everywhere, everything your hand reaches for, the Word of God ought to guide that. Everything you look at, the Word of God ought to be the lens through which you see that. You know, the Pharisees, by the time of Jesus, had made phylacteries, you know. They're going to carry the Bible on their garments. And so because of that, that made them really spiritual. And look, they missed the whole point of Deuteronomy 6. They had it on their hand and never got it in their heart. This is not about externals. This is about internals. It's very practical. He's saying in the application of life, in your business dealings, in the way you deal with the guy who cut you off in traffic this afternoon, in the way you respond to the waitress who wasn't very nice sitting at the restaurant. Know this, the Word of God should be the filter for all of that. Your children, the next generation, is watching all of that, and only the Word of God can keep us right. And then, not just all times and all actions, but all places. Verse 9, And thou shalt write them upon the post of thy house and on thy gates. Oh, the power of Scripture. Someone said, do you think that means we ought to have Scripture in our house? I certainly do. But I think it's more than just a plaque on the wall. If it's just a plaque on the wall, we miss the whole point. We're no better than the Pharisees. Let it be a plaque on the wall, but let it be a guiding principle for our lives. Let Bible instruction start at home. Then there's one more truth. Not only does godly influence start at home and Bible instruction starts at home, but the divine intention starts at home. Do you know that there is a great divine program, a plan that God is working right now, a divine intention, and it's revealed in this passage? Now, we've studied from verse 3 down to verse 9, but I want to show you now the verse before it and the verse after it because I really believe, like like bookends on the passage we're studying, it reveals the divine intention. Everybody look at verse 2. He says, That thou mightest fear the Lord thy God to keep all his statutes and his commandments which I command thee. And here it is. Don't miss this. Stop. Look at me just a second. Time out. How many of you believe every word of Scripture is there for a reason? Y'all every word people? So nothing there by accident. Look at it carefully. Mark it in your Bible. Thou and thy son and thy Son, son, all the days of thy life and that thy days may be prolonged. Would you mark in verse 2, thou, thy son, thy son, son. Come to verse 10. And it shall be when the Lord thy God shall have brought thee into the land which he swear unto thy fathers. Here it is. You ready? To Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. To give thee great and goodly cities which thou buildest not. Would you connect thou and thy son and thy son's son in verse 2 to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob in verse number 10? Look at it, please. Thou, Abraham, thy son, Isaac, thy son's son, Jacob. Please don't miss this. Would you like to know God's program? I'm going to tell you God's program. No man came up with this. This is not some church program. This is the divine intention. God's intent was always that we would be accountable for three generations. You choose for yourself. That's you. Can't choose for everybody. Got to choose for you. 
You're accountable for what you put into the lives of your children, and you are also responsible then for not only them getting it, but for them then getting it so definitely that they learn their responsibility to transfer it to the next generation, to your children and to your grandchildren. By the way, grandparents are powerful people. I'm not saying that because I've become one. I'm saying that because I had some grandparents and God used them to transform my life. I found the first Bible I ever preached out of the other day and I opened up looking at the inside. It was given to me by my grandma and my grandpa. And I'm telling you something. There's some grandparents in heaven right now uh, that, are, that are pulling for some people here to keep it going, keep it going, keep it going. There's a generation that built this church. There's a generation that laid the foundation. There's a generation that paid the price. It's our turn, and it always begins at home. You got this? Thou, thy son, thy son, son, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Now go to Psalm 78. Let me show you. This is the divine intention. I'm telling you, it's woven through the whole of Scripture. You can find it all through Old and New Testament. Look at Psalm 78, this great psalm of Asaph, the psalm of teaching our children. He says in verse 4, We'll not hide them from their children, Psalm 78, verse 4, showing to the generation to come the praises of the Lord and His strength and His wonderful works that He's done. For He established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which He commanded our fathers, everybody mark fathers in verse number 5, that they should make them known to, mark it please, their children, that the generation to come might know them, even the children which should be born, who should arise and declare them to what? Their children. Would you mark fathers, their children, and then to their children, that they might set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep His commandments. Thou and thy son and thy son's son, to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, to our fathers, to their children, and to the generation that shall be born, their children. I'm telling you, we're responsible not only to have the truth and hold the truth, but to hand the truth to the generations coming along behind us. We've got too many of our people in churches saying, oh, bless God, I believe the truth. Well, that's good. But we're losing a whole generation that doesn't believe the truth. Maybe it's not enough that we simply hold to it and shout at it and give mental assent and nod our heads every now and then. Maybe we need to get back in our own homes to talking about how great our God is and passing on truth to the next generation. And where does it all begin? At home. It won't end there. No, no, that's just a starting point. It'll, like a ripple effect, it'll touch a lot of other households and communities and cities and churches, but it always begins at home. I said this in a breakout session earlier today, but the longer I live, I'm becoming increasingly convinced that much of the blessing of God on my life has, has less to do with what I have done and more to do with what my parents did. I really believe that. And really the effect of my life will not be seen so much by, by me. It will be seen by my children and by my grandchildren. And I don't know about you. That's deeply convicting to me because I'm thinking. And by the way, we're all sitting here thinking of regrets and things we should have done, should have said, should have, could have, would have. Isn't that right? You can't go back and change any of that. But let me tell you what you can do. You can start right where you are with a sphere of influence you have at this moment and say, by the grace of God, I'm not going to waste another opportunity until I see Jesus face to face. It all begins at home. Somebody mentioned the Isthmian Games this week. And lots of and that was kind of the Olympics of the day, you know, on that, on that, that isthmus, that little little um, piece of land, and they would come from all over the world. They had boat races, and they had uh, they had boxing matches with steel-studded gloves. They'd fight to the death. I mean, they had all kinds of competition. But do you know what the number one game at the Isthmian Games was? The most popular thing was a foot race. It was a foot race, and it was not just a foot race. It was a relay race. And here's, here's the way it would work. They would line up a bunch of runners here, and off yonder in the distance there would be another row of runners that you could barely see, and then beyond them another row of runners. Thy, look, please, thou and thy son and thy son's son. And the ones off in the distance, you couldn't even see them. You, you didn't even know exactly who they were or where they were. But they were out there waiting their turn. And it was a relay race. The only difference was they did not carry batons. They ran with lighted torches. Can you imagine? And they had to not only run, they had to keep the torch lit. And they not only had to keep the torch lit, they had to ha make the handoff so that from generation to generation, each group got the light. 
It became so popular that they coined an expression. It was like a colloquial term of the day. And it, in translated in our language, it says this, let those who have the light pass it on. How many of you have the light? Then pass it on. It's wonderful you received it, but now you must relay it. It's glorious you have the light of truth and the light of Jesus, but somehow, some way, by the grace of God and the enabling of the Holy Ghost, you must pass it on to the next generation. Somebody say, well, I, I don't know what to do. I'm going to tell you what to do. Just start right at home. I was about 14 years of age, and an old preacher in Huntington, West Virginia, asked me if I'd come preach a revival meeting for him. And I was so young, I couldn't drive a car, so somebody drove me down and dropped me off. And I was too young to stay in a hotel by myself, so I stayed at the preacher's house. And I look back now and think, that old fellow, he was just trying to help me. He had a wonderful church. And one day, Carl Valance, I'll never forget it, he said to me, now, Scott, we were at his house. He said, you need to build a good library. You need to read good books. And I said, yes, sir. He said, come in here. And he took me in a room where he had lots of books and went right to one. He, he was on a mission. And he pulled an old book off the, off the shelf, and he said, uh, I'm going to give you this. So I hope you get your library started. And he wrote in the front of it, I still have it, to Scott Pauley from Reverend Carl Valance and put the date and gave it to me. And I thanked him. I, I, I really did appreciate it, but I'm going to be honest with you. It was hardback, dusty, yellow pages with no pictures, not my favorite at the time. And I took it home and set it on a shelf and didn't read it. And about 10 years went by. And I saw it one day, and I thought, you know, out of respect for that old fellow, I really ought to read that book. And I picked up that old book and started reading it when I did. I could not put it down. It became one of my all-time favorite stories. It was a true story told by Russell Conwell, who had been overseas in the Middle East on, on a camel riding through the desert with a local tour guide. And a true story had been relayed to him, and it so captured him, he came back and started giving the story all over the United States. It became a famous story in that generation. It was a true story of a Persian man by the name of Ali Hafed. Ali Hafed had a beautiful farm and a lovely family and just a great life, great life. And one day a priest came by to pay a visit and he started talking about the discovery of diamond mines around the world and how people were finding all these diamonds, becoming so wealthy they never had to work again. And a little seed of discontent was planted in Ali Hafed's mind. Funny how you can be perfectly content one day and not the next, isn't it? And for weeks, it just ate at him, all these people finding diamonds and getting rich, and he's working himself to the bone. He missed what he had right at home. One morning, he woke up, made a very dumb decision. You ever made a dumb decision? Sold his farm, true story, gave his family to a neighbor, different culture, gave his family away to a neighbor, said, I'll be back after him when I found my diamonds, and set off on a lifelong quest in search of diamonds, crisscrossed the globe from continent to continent. Never found a diamond mine. Never found a single diamond. As an old man, he went to the bay in Barcelona, Spain, and jumped. Took his own life. Thought he had nothing to live for, which, by the way, is never true because a living dog's better than a dead lion. But he thought, nothing left to live for. I'm reading this book, and I thought, man, this is depressing. Then it got worse. The worst part of the story is what Ali Fed never knew. Just days after he sold his farm, the guy who bought the farm led his camel out back on the property to water it at a creek that ran through the property. And that camel with his big old nose nosing around in that creek bed uncovered a beautiful rock. And the new owner took it and shined it up, took it inside, set it low on the mantle over the fireplace. Same priest came by to pay a visit, walks in, sees it glistening in the light, eyes get big, and he says, Holly Huffhead has returned. And he said, no. He said, where'd you get the diamond? He said, that's not a diamond. That's an old rock we found out back. And the priest said, show me where you found it. And they went to the creek bed and got down on their hands and knees and started scrounging around and found another one just like it. And another one and another one and another one. They hired teams of people to come in. They started excavating the property. They brought miners from all over the region. Would you know, this is a true story. You can find it and read all about it. Would you know the largest diamond mine in history to that point was discovered on Ali Hafed's farm? The great diamond mine of Golconda from which the crown jewels of many a nation came was right under his feet all along. Look, please. Everything that man spent the rest of his life looking for to bring fulfillment and purpose and lasting blessing actually was right at home all along if he'd just taken the time to work right at home. And somehow we've gotten our minds out there yonder somewhere. There's purpose and pleasure and fulfillment and enjoyment 
And I'm telling you, every good thing God has for you starts right at home if you and I will begin to do what God has given us to do. You want to equip the next generation? You want to make a difference in this world? You want to pass it on? It all begins at home. Our Father, I thank you tonight for the Word of God that lives and abides forever. I thank you for the Holy Spirit who has led us this week and I trust now will help us to apply the truth to our own hearts and homes. Father, much has gone into this conference. May much grow out of it. And may Jesus get all the glory for it. Our heads are bowed before the Lord prayerfully. I must ask this question on this final night. It's thrilling to see people come to the Lord this week. But I must ask this question. Is there anyone among us tonight that would say, Preacher, I'm not a Christian. I'm just going to be honest and humble enough to say, I'm not sure of my own relationship to God and that my sins are forgiven, but I don't want to be lost. Preacher, would you pray for me? Would you slip your hand up in the air with mine long enough for me to acknowledge it and then take it back down and say, pray for me, preacher. I need my sins forgiven. I need peace with God. Anyone like that at all? Anyone at all? Pray for me. Pray for my soul. The best I can tell, I'm speaking to believers. So I want to ask a couple questions. Let's start here. Let's judge ourselves. Don't think about your kids or grandkids yet. Don't think about the next generation. Let's start with ourselves. How many of you tonight would say, Preacher, the truth of the matter is, I need to get more sensitive to the Lord. I, I need to get more into the Scriptures. I need to fall in love with Jesus all over again. I, I need my own heart engaged again with God. I, I, I've been floating, and that's got to change, and I want God to change it because I know I can't pass it on if it's not real to me. That's where I am, Preacher. Pray for me. Would you raise your hand with mine right now? Yes, that's many of us. That's many of us. I'm going to ask you people that just raised your hand in a second to be the first people to lead the charge to this old-fashioned altar and tell God what you just told me in a second. Let's go a little further. How many of you would say, Preacher, I, sitting here, I do love the Lord. As far as I know, my heart is right with God. But I realize I've got to do a better job of passing on truth, of, of instructing others in the Word. And Maybe it's my children, maybe it's my grandchildren, maybe it's the neighborhood children, maybe it's the kids in this church. But I want God to use me somehow, I really do, to pass it on. Preacher, would you pray that God would use me to make a difference while I still have breath in my body? You say, count me in on that prayer. Would you raise your hand big and high in the air with mine? That's an army of us. I'm going to tell you, if that many people really get serious about it, there's no telling what could grow out of this meeting for the next generation. 